A lot of you know Madison. Uh, you see, you've seen her up here. If you've been here at Faith Westwood, you've seen her up singing, which she does fairly frequently. And uh, she just uh, finished her first year at Northwest Missouri State, which I got the name of it right this time. Yeah. I got mm -hmm. my tang tangled last time. So mm -hmm. anyway, and uh, her, uh, anyway, her, her, her family's always here. Uh, her parents, George and Kristen and her sister, Emma. And, and uh, so anyway, we're so glad to have you back this summer. Um, well, today we're talking about transitions. And, you know, we all go through, through transitions about, you know, being, you know, are we confident in ourselves and in our abilities? And, and for you, a lot of that story goes with, to music. So yeah, it does. What, 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 how did that happen with you? What's your transition story? Yeah. Well, started growing up, I was always really concerned about what people thought about me, and I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. I would worry about like what people thought about what I wore, how I would talk, how I acted, and one of those was how I would sing. Um, growing up, my parents told me that like I had an amazing voice, but then I was like, I'm not so sure about that, because I felt like everyone else was so much better than I was. I like didn't have the confidence in my own voice to think that like, oh, I'm good enough because I did not think I was good enough. So it. So how did, yeah. how did you kind of get through that then to come to a better place? Yeah, so it took a lot of like practice and hard work. Um, I sang a lot more, which helped me kind of grow my confidence a little bit. And then I realized that like people have different styles of voices and they might be good at that style and then I'm good at a different style. And oh, yeah. another part of it was, well, I got this idea from a Toby Mac concert. He is a Christian music musician. And for one of his songs, he was talking about how it was giving his like time on stage to God. And there was a prayer that he would pray every time before he sang. And it, his prayer was, Lord, make me a hollow vessel and fill me with your voice. Mm -hmm. And I heard it, I was like, man, <laughs> that's really good. I need to start using it. And so now every time before I, before I sing, I pray that prayer that, God, I'm a hollow vessel. Fill me with your voice. It's your voice, um, not mine. Because the whole thing I was worrying about, am I singing the right notes? Am I singing the right words? Will people like it? Will people connect to it? When it was just, I was just thinking about all me, 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 this, and not giving all my worries and burdens to Christ. Uh, to let him take care of them. So by like opening myself up to him through that aspect, I can now like show his grace and love through my singing even more now. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's kind of helped you, hasn't it? Take that focus off yourself, just kind of presenting it and yeah. letting him work through you. That's, yeah. really, that's a great thing. Now, you know, I, I always don't know what's gonna happen with our students when they graduate from here and they they go off to college but uh, I've really been encouraged mm -hmm. as I've heard about you a little bit and so sh share with us about this transition uh, through your first year of college yeah well I was a little hard going to Northwest because I originally wanted to be in either a school that was Christian based or that I felt I would still have the connection because I was afraid that I would lose my faith when I went off to college and that was something that I really wanted to keep for myself. So Northwest is a secular campus. It's not um, associated with any religion but they have the Wesley Center um, on campus and it was right by my dorm 
And uh, I heard about it from Natalie Zook. She grew up going to this church, and she's also a fellow student of mine there. And she told me about it, and I was like, yeah, I think I'll stop by. And it just happened that she didn't go with me the first time that I went, so it was just me and all these other people that I didn't know. But I kept on going and creating these relationships with these people, and I just felt even more comfortable in getting out of my comfort zone. So at the Wesley Center, there's two opportunities that they have there. There's a, the peer ministry program and then a church internship program. And uh, so the peer ministry program is, it takes like college students um, on the campus and will lead activities for people at the Wesley Center or in the community that they can come to and like eat food, hear Bible studies, and just have grow connections with other Christ followers and maybe even start their journey with Christ. Yeah. And then the church internship is, um, so Maryville is a smaller school because it's a college community, but there's also a lot of rural uh, towns around Maryville that they have Methodist churches, but there's not a lot of funding or people that, enough people that go there to have a pastor that's currently there all the time. So as a church intern, uh, you would go to these churches like two times a month for each church and give a sermon to so people there. You've been a church intern. I next year I'm going to be a church okay. intern and a peer minister, and yeah. Yeah. So you're going to be. I'm going to be doing this with a bunch of with a, <laughs> a few people and just leading them in calls to worship, prayer times, and prayer requests. Yeah, so, that's yeah. great. Yeah. What a big transition you're going mm -hmm. through. I mean, yeah. you could you have imagined a few years ago you'd be doing something no, like this? No, I would have not. Yeah. And it took me a little bit to even decide to be a church intern and even a peer minister because I thought I wasn't good enough. I don't read the Bible every day like I think I should. And I just felt like I didn't have as good of a connection with God as a lot of other people mm -hmm. did. And I was like, I can't stand in front of people and tell them about the wonderful things about God if I'm like still kind of doing some things wrong myself. Yeah. So it wasn't until some people there told me, they're like, you can't do this on your own. We'll be there to help you. Trust in God and he'll help you. And then I realized, yeah, I can do this. If God's there with me, yeah. then I can do anything. So what's it been like then? You know, you've kind of been through this big transition year in your life and then you come back. You know, and you're here at Faith Westwood. What, what's that transition been like? Yeah, well, like before I went off to college, I was like the same person throughout. I didn't think that I could have a, such a drastic change and like still go through my daily life. So I was afraid that I was going to return back to how I was before. But I also didn't want to be that person I was back then because I feel so much better now and so much more comfortable with myself. So coming back here, I've been trying to continue to have that connection with God even more and it's been great being back. I grew up in the church and it just feels good to come back and just be in that community again. Sure. Like I was trying to find churches that I felt like at home with in Maryville and it was hard because I felt so at home here and it was tricky to find a home there and but also have a home here. So it's great to be back home. Yeah, so. those are tough transitions yeah. to make there too. So uh, thank you Madison and I, you know, I, I know that for a lot of us here, maybe what the thing, the transition we're making in our lives doesn't look anything like hers, but her story can connect with ours. And we realize, okay, what Madison did to make it through her transitions are a lot of the same things I'm gonna have to draw on 
to make it through the ones I'm going to or the ones I'll face in the future. Yeah. So thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we ask that by the wondrous grace and power of your presence, you'll speak to us here today and uh, move in our hearts, but also then translate that into our lives. So we, we leave here different, uh, bit by bit, every time. We leave here different, and we, we absorb you into our, our minds, our hearts, uh, and how we go about life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our final Sunday in our series uh, in July called Transition Times. Uh, we've been reading from the book of Numbers, which is not a real popular book in the Bible, probably for good reason, but uh, anyway, it's, it's where God had already delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, but they've not yet entered the promised land. So they're in between. They're in transition. Meanwhile, their, their neighbors are really kind of nervous. Like, we don't like having these Israelites around. The Moabites and the Midianites wish they could just get rid of these Israelites. Uh, now, uh, we heard just a little bit ago, uh, Kay read for us from Numbers chapter 25. You back up a few chapters, chapter 22, the Moabite king sends a message to the prophet Balaam. says, I will reward you handsomely. Come and put a curse on these people for me. You know, those were the days. I mean, I can hear the call come in. Balaam's cursing service, may I help you? Yeah. But the problem is that, that Balaam, is, he is, he's only going to do what the Lord tells him to do. He's only going to say what the Lord tells him to say. And the Lord tells Balaam to, to bless Israel, not curse them. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be for the Moabites and the Midianites? Ha! That blew up. Now what are we going to do? So they hatch a new plan. If you can't curse your enemies, make them into your relatives. Huh? That'll show them. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 25. We're going to start with verse 1. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 160. The Israelites are camped out on the east side of the Jordan River before they launch into the promised land to the west. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to, be, to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Apparently the only way you could get a date with a Moabite woman is to go to church with her. And, and that meant worshiping their local deity called Baal. Baal was the idol who was supposed to uh, grant uh, rain for your crops and fertility for your livestock. And, and to worship them, worship Baal, first you had to bring a food offering to Baal. And then, it was kind of nice because then you shared a, a meal with others, kind of a community meal, meal in, in the act of worship. You know, the Israelites did something like that. Uh, they, they would have similar uh, meals where you have a, present a sacrifice to the Lord, but then you also share the meal with one another and, and express your devotion to the Lord. Another part of the Baal worship, though, was not practiced by the Israelites. The Moabites would then engage in sex in the Baal temple prostitutes provided. 
And if you ask these Israelite men, why are you doing that? They say, well, why not? I mean, we've been wandering about the wilderness for nearly 40 years. It's time for a little fun. And God would say, well, I want you to be happy too. But the only true path to happiness is through holiness. Stay faithful to me because you're my people and I'm your God. Let's go to verse 3. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Peor was a mountain in Moab. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's where the Baal temple was. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Why does God get angry like that? You know? God gets angry because he cares. It's like when you, you know, you're in some store somewhere, you see some kid misbehaving. Oh, it might bother you a little bit, but not very much, unless it's your kid, right? He knows he's not supposed to do that. I've told her a thousand times. God gets angry because he cares. The ancient Israelites are God's children, and God wants to use them. God wants to use them to, to bless peoples all over the world. And so when he sees his children betray him and chase after false gods, yeah, he's going to get angry. Still, I have to admit, what mo you know, this whole, this whole chapter, Numbers 25, I don't like it much. And really, that's why I picked it today. And what, what the Lord tells Moses to do in, in verse 4 really bothers me. Let's go, let's look at that. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Apparently, God believes that the leaders of the tribes are responsible for the behaviors of the people. And then I'm thinking, Lord, what's going on here? I mean, this can't be the right thing to do to, to kill these leaders like that. And then, and then something really puzzling, it actually went by me the first time. I didn't even notice it. Maybe the same happened to you, but in verse 5, Moses doesn't do what the Lord says right here. Instead uh, of executing the leaders, Moses uh, orders that only the offenders be killed. So Moses said to Israel's judges, that is the leaders, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. So at least the executions are limited to the offending parties, but I still don't like it. I do not like it at all. I, I, have, I have studied the death penalty and the Bible a good bit, and I, I have come up with what I believe is a compelling case, at least to me, to no longer support the death penalty. And you say, well, Steve, how can you say that? I mean, it's right there in the Bible. God commands it and demands it. Okay. But we don't do everything in the Old Testament. And here's why. And I introduced this principle a few weeks ago, and I'm going to repeat it again because it is so important to get this. As Christians, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Right? Let's say it together, shall we? As Christians, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Jesus brought uh, the Old Testament to a higher level. 
like the time when he announced, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's a law from the Old Testament. And, you know, in a way, it was, it was a good law. It limited revenge. And so if you got down into a, you know, a drunken brawl with, with somebody and they knocked your tooth out, you couldn't come back to them and kill them in revenge. Revenge had to be restricted. Punishment had to be proportionate. Tooth for tooth. And then Jesus comes along and authoritatively announces, but I say to you, can you imagine? I mean, that's kind of audacious, isn't it? He quotes the, the Old Testament. Well, here's what it says. But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, them to, turn to them the other also. You see, Jesus takes righteousness to a higher level. It's not about limiting revenge anymore. It's about forgiving from your heart. It's about loving your enemies. The Old Testament commanded... Uh, execution for those caught in adultery. We would never do that today. But you see, God was working at a time with, with, a, with a rough people in a violent time, and he had to relate to them in a way that, that they could understand. God had to, to work with them and bring them to the point that he would prepare them for the coming of Jesus. Now, get this. Reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, means that we are free to keep things from the Old Testament that fit with Jesus and throw out the things that don't. Did you know that? Reading the Old Testament from the lens of Jesus, it means that we are free to keep the things in it that fit with Jesus and throw out the things, set aside the things that don't. The New Testament does this all the time. The New Testament reads the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Okay, so we've looked at verses 1 through 5. That was the first story. There are two stories, though. And, and let's go to the second story, which starts with verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman, right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. People were weeping because, I don't know, maybe because all the men who had been executed for bowing to a Moabite idol and cavorting with Moabite women. I don't know. But then the, the, the Midianites, though, you see, they take a different strategy. They encourage intermarriage with Israel. And by the way, don't blame the Midianite women because I'm pretty sure it was their fathers that cooked all this up. The scene we get here is of a young couple who have just returned from their wedding in Moab and they're heading into the groom's tent in the Israelite camp. And at the end of the passage, we learn of a, a plague that killed 24,000 people. In verse, this is what it says in verse 9. However, I want you to know that the, in Hebrew, there's a very similar word to thousand and it could be clan. And, and it, you could read that they were people from 24 clans. I don't really know which would be the correct reading. From my 21st century perspective, I wonder if the Israelites, by mingling with the Midianites, were introduced to some virus or disease that they had no immunity to, but who knows. From God's perspective, this whole project of making Israel his chosen people seems like it's about to blow away in the, in the dust of the desert. 
And if the Israelites keep doing this, if they keep intermarrying with the Midianites, their faith will be corrupted. Their children won't know what to believe. Now, if I'm your pastor, I will say, if you're a Jesus follower and you're seeking to get married, I hope you'll marry another Jesus follower. You know, I like what Tim Keller says. If your faith is at the center of who you are, and you marry someone who does not share this faith, you're either going to not get to share something that is very much at the core of who you are, or you'll be tempted to move it out of the center of your life. But if you do marry someone who's not a Jesus follower, I will be supportive. As best I can, I'll be supportive. You know, let's say you marry a Muslim, or it could be any religion or faith, or none at all. But let, let's say it's a Muslim, and they, and they never come to worship with you. That would be pretty likely. Or if they do, but if they do come, they will be welcomed. Imagine, though, what would happen if, some, you know, very quickly, this church had dozens and dozens of couples where one person was a Christian in the marriage and the other person was a Muslim. And then, you know, they, they, were, they were teaching Sunday school and, and so our kids were kind of getting a mishmash of, of, of faiths there. And then, and then we'd, we'd have pressure. Well, Steve, we, you know, in addition to reading the Bible in worship, we want you to read the Quran as well. If that happened, we would cease to be a Christian church. Our identity as people of Jesus would be lost. So I get God's warning about the risk of intermarriage here because it's really a risk of blending faith and then losing, losing it all. But you know, there's still a lot I don't like about this story. I just... Maybe you had a similar reaction when you when you heard Kay read it a little bit ago. I don't like the idea that God would send a plague and kill a bunch of Israelites to make them stop marrying the Midianites. I don't like it when a, when a young priest uh, becomes a hero for throwing his spear through the bodies of a bride and groom in their wedding night. You know, as I said before, I, I, I try to remember that God was working with a rough people during a violent time. And, and in one sense, that young priest's heart was in the right place. You know, he had, he had a zeal for God. But I think Jesus would tell him that his zeal was ultimately misplaced. That there's a higher level of righteousness, a better way to express your zeal. He just didn't know it yet. So as Christians, what do we learn from, from a, a passage in the Bible like Numbers 25? How do we read it then through the lens of Jesus? So here's one thing. Steer clear of anyone who tempts you to seek happiness at the expense of holiness. Now, God wants you to be happy, absolutely. He loves you, he desires your happiness, but happiness at the expense of holiness will let you down every time. Holiness simply means that you belong to God and you want to be faithful to God. So let's, let's say this together, shall we? 
Steer clear of anyone who tempts you to seek happiness at the expense of holiness. You know, one of the prayers that we pray all the time, I pray nearly every day is the Lord's Prayer, and part of that is that we pray that our Father would not lead us into temptation. And I, and I don't believe that means that God is the one who leads us into temptation. I think it's just a way of, of asking God to lead us away from temptation. And we pray to be led away from temptation because we are too weak to be able to resist nonstop temptation, right? I mean, if it was a constant barrage in our face every moment of the day, we wouldn't, we, we, we're just too weak to be able to stand that. We couldn't resist continuous temptation. And that's why when temptation comes, we got to get out of there. Or we got to remove that temptation. We got to do one or the other. We got we to get out of there or get rid of it. For example, uh, the Bible says that greed is, one, is, a, is a big sin, big time sin. Um, greed lies to get more. Greed takes advantage of others to get more. Greed hoards rather than shares so they'll have more. And maybe you have friends who live like that. Maybe people you hang out with, they'll just pretty much do anything to get more. And I will tell you, if those are the people you are hanging around with, get out of there. If they are continually tempting you to seek happiness at the expense of holiness, they're going to drag you down. Steer clear of anyone who tempts you that way. Another thing is, you know, you don't have to go very far to find someone who says, hey, sex is okay for anyone, anytime, as long as they're consenting adults. It's all good. We've We've been programmed to believe that. That's a value that our society holds. And that's what the Israelites were tempted to believe. Hey, let's, all, let's, let's head to the Baal Temple in Moab. You know, it'll be fun. What's the harm? The Apostle Paul uh, was thinking of Numbers chapter 25 when he told a group of Christ followers in Corinth. Uh, he said, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. I don't know why he says 23 and then number says 24,000, but whatever. Sexual immorality carries consequences that we may not be able to see at the time carries consequences that we may not be able to see at the moment. But we're Jesus' people. And we trust him and we seek our happiness through holiness. So, this morning I'm going to end with a few questions uh, for you to ponder and pause for just, I'm going to pause just for a little bit between each one so you've got a chance to kind of let them soak in and see how they apply to you. First, who brings temptation into your life?
How will you remove that temptation? Or remove yourself from that temptation? And then finally, will you ask Jesus to bring you happiness through holiness? Did you notice that that last question is yes or no? <laughs> Will you ask Jesus to bring you happiness through holiness? Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we, are, we open our hearts and minds to you now, and, and uh, we can so easily be led astray. Our faith can be diluted and corrupted. Uh, our relationship with you can easily get distorted. And, uh, Lord, there are people around us that might pull us away and uh, tempt us in ways that will be ultimately destructive. So, Lord, we ask that you will keep us strong, keep us wise, keep us following you and trusting you in everything that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.